0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. In reference to the pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer said this. He said, the modern scientist has lost God amid the wonders of his world. And we Christians are in danger of losing God amid the wonders of his word. Let me say that again. The modern scientist has lost God amid the wonders of his world and we Christians are in danger of losing God amid the wonders of his word. We have almost forgotten that God is a person And as such can be cultivated as any other person can. It is inherent in personality to be able to know other personalities. But full knowledge of one personality by another cannot be achieved in one encounter. It is only after long and loving mental intercourse that the full possibilities of both can be explored. As Tozer stated here, many modern evangelicals have replaced an actual vibrant and relational connection with the living God with a mere study of what God has said. Jesus said at one point in his ministry in Jerusalem, he said in John chapter 5 in verses 33 through 40, he said, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. And his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now listen to this part. Listen to what he says right here. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus told those present in that day that they had missed the entire point of studying. He says, listen, <laughs> you heard the witness of John, you have the scriptures, you have the Old Testament prophets, you, you, you have the, the, the books of Moses, you have all the law, the 613 commands that were all pointing to a person, to me. And you have the witness of these miracles that I'm doing that, that are miracles that were prophesied by the prophets in the Old Testament. You've seen the fulfillment of all that God has been saying would happen when Messiah comes. And now the Messiah is here and you're dismissing him. You've missed the point of the scriptures. The scriptures were supposed to lead you to me. You see God is a person. And as a person is to be known and it's to be related to personally. Though it is God who loved us first, who sent his son to die for us, who sent his spirit to draw us unto himself, we also have a role In responding to God personally, there's a blessed partnership that takes place in the heart of those who've put their trust in Jesus. It's God who both works in us to will and to do His good pleasure. That's what we're told in the scriptures. It's God who's the initiator of all the good fruit that comes from our lives. But that doesn't mean that we are passive in the process. It doesn't mean that we just sort of sit back and that there's really nothing for us to do, that it just sort of will happen if we just only simply, merely believe the right details. You see, to know God is to love Him. To know God is, is to relate to Him. We allow His spirit to search our hearts. We allow God into the deepest places of our being. We allow Him to come to us and personally speak into our lives, into our hearts, through His word, through the fellowship of the saints through moments of worship, through the working of his spirit as he personally speaks to us. And we do all of this so that we can agree with the words of the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, he said, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way, grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In Psalm 63 verses 1 through 8, he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you and my soul thirsts for you. My flesh Thanks for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. and Because of this my lips will praise you. And so I I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hand. And your right hand upholds me. (laughs) You see, these are not the words of a mere student of the historical workings of God. These are the words of relationship, of connection, of longing at the deepest places of the heart and of the soul. This is the cry of a soul and the deepest longing of their heart. He says, God, my heart, my soul longs for you like somebody that's dying of thirst in a dry and weary land. How many of you got out in the sun yesterday when it was 109, 110 degrees? How many of you wisely chose air conditioning? Yeah. I had to take the dog for a walk I was out for like 15 minutes I came back I was so parched the psalmist here he says that craving that need that desire at the deepest place of me that's how I feel about God that's That's why I come into the sanctuary. That's why I lift my hands in praise. That's why I look at his word. That's why I do these things because my heart only finds satisfaction. It only finds fulfillment. It only finds joy in knowing God. these are not the words of a mere student of the historical workings of God and this idea of cultivating a relationship with God is something that Jesus talked about and something that he exemplified throughout his life and ministry there's probably though no more poignant passage than the one that we're about to dive into and if we take the words of Jesus seriously here it will absolutely change radically the way in which we live in this busy, crazy, frantic world that we're presently existing in. So we're going to dive into the text here and I have to just confess right up front, I am not going to do justice to all that is here. We're going to like grab a couple of highlights. But I'll tell you, I've been soaking in this now for a number of weeks, knowing that this teaching is coming. And I've got to tell you, there are treasures to be mined from this passage. We, we, we could do a whole you know, six-month series on just this passage alone. And So I just invite you, don't let it stop here. We're going we're gonna to hit some of the, the mountaintops here. But I would encourage you, man, go back to this passage and, and begin to dive into some of the valleys. Begin to explore some of the depths here because there's, there's a treasure trove that is in this place. Well, this teaching that Jesus is about to give comes to us as a part of the series of teachings that Jesus gave his disciples. And th- it happens on the night before he's going to the cross. This is a moment where within 24 hours, Jesus is going to be crucified on the cross for the sins of the world. And so he is, he's seeking to prepare his disciples for that moment. He understands the trauma that is about to unfold in their lives as they see their friend and their companion, who they spent... Three years backpacking around the countryside and preaching the gospel and doing ministry and seeing miracles and and eating with and and reclining with in the cool of the day and and riding in boats with and taking vacations at the beach with. They they are going to see him brutally and savagely murdered within 24 hours. And Jesus knows he has to do something to prepare their heart. And so this teaching comes at that moment. And and because Jesus cares so deeply for them, he's seeking to prepare their hearts for what is coming. And he's told them that what is coming is actually better for them. In the previous chapter, in verse 26, he says, It's better that I go away from you, so that the comforter may come. When the comforter comes, he's going to, the helper, he's going to, teach you everything that you need to know and bring into remembrance all that I've said to you. So what's about to happen, it's going to feel traumatic, disciples. But I'm telling you, it's the better thing. Now, honestly, I'll, I'll be real frank with you. I have a hard time believing that. Jesus, physically present, doing miracles, raising the dead, healing the sick, casting demons out, the kingdom, present. I I find myself going, doesn't that seem better? And Jesus says, no, it's not better. What's coming after the cross is better than this. And so this discourse, it started in the upper room, but it's continued as they're making their way to the Mount of Olives. And in verse 31, we're told that Jesus, in talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's just washed the feet of the disciples and broken bread with them. And then in verse 31, it says, at the, at the tail end, let us go from here. In other words, they, they left the upper room and began to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the upper room is in another part of Jerusalem. And to get to the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples and Jesus are going to have to pass by the eastern side of the temple and pass by a specific gate there. And it's likely that on the way, as they pass by what was called the Nicanor Gate, that faced due east from the courts of the temple, Jesus gives this teaching. Now, before we dive in, I, I just want to set the table just a little bit because Jesus is walking with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will sweat drops of blood, be betrayed by Judas, arrested, and carried off to the cross. And while he's walking, they pass by the Nicanor Gate. I want you to hear Josephus and how he describes this gate. He says, the sacred edifice itself, the holy temple, in the central position was approached by a flight of 12 steps. And the facade was of equal height and breadth, each being a 100 cubits, but the building behind was narrower. The entire facade was covered with gold. And though it, the first edifice, was visible to a spectator without, uh, a spectator without in all of its grandeur and the surroundings of the inner gate, all gleaming with gold, fell beneath his eye. And the gate... Opening had moreover above it those golden vines so there were these golden vines that hung over the gate this giant gate and the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye it had golden clusters and grapes as tall as a man so Josephus here in describing the Nicanor Gate, he says that it was covered with these golden vines and had these giant golden clusters of grapes, some of them as tall as a man that hung from the gates of the temple. Very impressive. The wall itself covered in gold foil and then these golden vines that hung down with giant golden grapes as tall as a man. Matter of fact, we're told by others in history, that one of the pastimes in visiting the temple and going to the temple was to donate golden clusters of grapes to be hung upon the gate. And it's surmised that, that Jesus and his disciples are at this moment passing that point when Jesus spoke this portion of scripture to his disciples. The vine that hung over the gates of the temple was was symbolic. It was was a symbol of Israel. It was really taken from the words of the Psalms and of the prophet Isaiah where God said that Israel was was his vineyard. And that he had hedged it about with protection and dug at the roots of it and and fertilized it and cared for it and tended for it and put a tower in the midst of it and and had protected it, but that it had borne wild grapes. And as a result, judgment was coming upon the vineyard, that God would tear down the wall of protection and he would allow the animals to come in and to devour the fruit of it. In both the Psalm, in Psalm chapter 80, verse 8, and Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, God is talking about the coming judgment that is due to the fact that Israel bore these wild grapes and had become undesirable to God. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus now speaks these words. Let's read it. I am the true vine. Do you hear it? Jesus lays claim to something. He says, you, you have been attached to this ethnic, national identity of Israel, but I'm telling you, I'm the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now note this word. Abide in me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We're going to pause here and contemplate some of what this might mean. Here in this passage, Jesus begins with one of the seven I am statements that he makes throughout the Gospel of John. And through each of these statements, Jesus is laying claim to a phrase that is used by God to declare his essence, his nature, his character to Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, 14, God said to Moses, I am that I am. And Jesus, using that same exact phraseology, is laying claims to, to, one, identifying that he is a part, that he is a part of the Trinity, that he is the I am. In John 6, he said, I am the bread of life. As bread sustains physical life, so Christ offers and sustains spiritual life. He says, I'm the light of the world in John 8, 12. To a world that is lost in darkness, Christ offers himself as a guide. He says, I am the door of the sheep in John 10, verses 7 and 9. And Jesus protects his followers as a shepherd protects their flock. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, from John eleven twenty five, 25, death is not the final word for those who are in Christ. He says, I am the good shepherd. John 10, 11 and 14. Jesus is committed to caring for those that are his. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. And here... He says, I am the true vine. And here's what he's saying. By being attached to me, by letting my life flow into you, you will bear fruit in your life. Fruit that comes from the vine itself. That things will be produced in your life automatically by your adhering to, by your abiding in, by your connection to the vine. You know, in the Gospel of John, of the 14 times that the word abide is used, 11 of them are found in this chapter alone. There's much to unpack here. But I I, I want you to see, first of all, That Jesus is calling his disciples, even though he is leaving in the crucifixion, to remain connected to him. He's saying, stay connected to me. Stay connected to me. I'm going away, but stay connected to me. Your connection to me will produce fruit in your life. Spiritual things will happen as a result of your connection to me. The same fruits that you have seen in my life will be produced in you as you abide, as you receive life and nourishment from me. That same life and nourishment that you have seen in me will flow into you and through you in life. So I want to make three observations about the text first of all fruitfulness happens through abiding number one fruitfulness happens through abiding the second thing that i would like you to take note of is that fruitfulness is increased by structure and pruning Fruitfulness in our lives is increased by structure and by pruning. And the third thing that I want you to see from this is that abiding is continual and fruitfulness is seasonal. Abiding is continual and fruitfulness is seasonal. So let's unpack that just a little bit verses 1 through 5, Jesus says to his disciples, look, abide in me and you'll bear fruit. Any branch that doesn't abide in me, doesn't stay connected to me, is cut off by the Father and it's burned in the fire. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, You can do nothing. (laughs) That's a big claim, isn't it? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, fruitfulness happens through abiding. Our connection to Jesus relationally makes us the recipients, first of all, of his love and affection. You see, we love him because he first loved us. And when we abide in him, when we are connected to him, when we are relationally close to him, we soak up his love for us. And this happens in order that we might be a conduit for that love, that his love would pour into us, satisfying our need, and then begin to flow through us producing fruit in our lives. And we soak up his love not simply by reading about him, but by being with him. So, fruitfulness happens through abiding. And our connection to Jesus relationally make us, makes us the recipients, first of all, of his love and affection. Second of all, of his word and instruction. Notice as you go down further, uh, in, in verse, uh, verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And then also in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words... The word, words there, by the way, is rhema. Jesus could have used the word logos, which was the written word, the record, right? But he uses the word rhema, which is the spoken word, the present word, the thing that is said presently. And he says, if my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So, We become the recipients through our relational connection with Jesus of his word and his instruction. His logos word, written word, is a means to an end. What he has written for us is to bring us into fellowship with him so that he might speak to us the rhema word, By his Holy Spirit. When we study, yes, we want to study historically. We want to study literally. We want to look at it grammatically. We want to understand it to the best of our ability, accurately. But the point of that is not the mere mental exercise of getting out a... a, a Greek or Hebrew dictionary, and and, and studying the scriptures so that we can know exactly what it means technically. The technical part is supposed to transition into a relational part where we bring our hearts before the Lord and we say, God, how does this instruct me? Tell me by the Holy Spirit. Highlight for me what it is that you want me to know from the word that you have written Show me by the words that you are speaking. It exposes, the written word exposes the areas where our fellowship and surrender are healthy and where they're broken. And we come under conviction in the moment, the Holy Spirit, we, we read something, you go, that, that doesn't look like my life. That, that's God's heart. I see that clearly, but that doesn't look like me. And all of a sudden what happens is under conviction, we come to the Lord relationally. And we begin to say, God, I see that my, my heart and my life are not in congruence with what you've revealed about your, your heart and your character and your nature. And, and, I, and I feel conviction from the Holy Spirit. You're speaking to me, Rama, word, presently and showing me how to live right now. i have got to yield to that. Thank you for the conviction. Shape me now. Change me. Mold me. So our connection with Jesus relationally makes us the recipients of His first of all, love and affection. When we worship Him and we love Him in response to His love for us, we are filled with the love of Christ. We're reminded in worship of all that he is and how much he adores us. And then, when we hear the word being the written word, and when we take in the scriptures, or when we, we come to a church service, we hear something on the radio, or we read something in our devotions, or we reading, and maybe a good Christian author who highlights some aspect of truth, then the rhema comes by the Holy Spirit as God begins to speak to us, by the Spirit and shape us in life, He gives us His word and instruction. The third thing that happens through our connection relationally is that we re- become the recipients of his of power and of identity there 's two core realities in that two core realities. first of all, the first one, uh, excuse me. There are two core principles. The first one is core reality. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 5. Apart from me, you you can do nothing. Our power to do what God has called us to do in life is not produced through the energy of our flesh. Do you hear that? Our power to do what God has called us to do in life is not produced by the energy of our flesh, by mere willpower. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, it is possible to have a disciplined life apart from closeness to Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. It it is possible to get up and read your Bible every day. It is possible week after week to come to church. It is possible to celebrate Christmas and Easter every year and to have Advent and maybe even go through Lent and be disconnected from the life of God. You can go through the steps, through the rituals, and have no relational connection. So you'd be very, very disciplined and totally disconnected from God. It is not possible to have a fruitful and vibrant life apart from our relational connection to Jesus. Okay? It is possible to have a spiritually disciplined life apart from Jesus, but it is impossible to produce spiritual fruit apart from our relational connection to Jesus. It doesn't work that way. One is the byproduct of another. Our connection to Jesus produces things in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, meekness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things come as a result of our being close to, relationally, abiding in and receiving life and nourishment from Jesus. So, here's our core reality. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's our core identity. You see, He's confronting something that was a cultural belief in that time. The children of Israel thought that they were automatically close to God because they were ethnically Jewish. And while they're passing by the temple, they're walking along, the giant golden vines were a reminder to them that they are God's vineyard. And the giant golden clusters that looked like such giant uh, groups of grapes as tall as a man. We're a reminder that because we are Israel, because we are the the vine, we're connected to God already, and the fruitfulness just happens through our connection to our ethnic identity. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it happens. How it happens, actually, is through your connection to me. Your connection to The second person of the Godhead is how fruit happens. It was no longer from their family of origin. It was no longer found in their ethnic identity. It was no longer found in their national identity. It was their connection to and surrender to Jesus that was to produce fruit. And when we live this out, guys... When we live out this identity, our life all of a sudden has purpose. When all of a sudden, at our core belief system, our core reality, the way that we understand the world, apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Now, if I believe that to be true, I have to run to Jesus continually. And because my core connection, my my sense of identity, my my understanding of how it is that i am connected to god is not in my label as a christian not in my national identity as an american not in my ethnicity but in my dependence relationally upon jesus then i if i believe that's true i will live in a way that is consistent with that belief see how that works so fruitfulness happens through abiding. Second thing you need to know: fruitfulness is increased by structure and pruning. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that uh, I used to have grapevines on a piece of property that we lived on here in Medford, and I had to learn how to how to tend grapes. At first, they were just kind of growing wild and growing on the ground. And so then I put some poles and some wires in and I began to train them upward and get the the branches to go along the wires. I secured them there so that they would begin to grow. And when I first came to that house, they would produce these little clusters of like 10, 15 grapes. But as I added structure and as I began to prune, they became increasingly more fruitful. And we got a lot of grapes off of only a few vines. see fruitfulness is increased by structure and pruning first of all let's let's talk about the pruning process there are these things called suckers there there are these branches that grow up that suck the energy from the vine and keep the resources of the vine from being deposited into the fruit making branches of the vine So a wise vine dresser, who is God the Father, comes along and he cuts away the branches that pull away energy from the fruitfulness. See how that works? There's a one-to-one correlation there. God, the the wise vine dresser, comes into our lives and he trims away the things that suck away life in Christ. Nourishment in Christ. Things that take away life. And then second of all, establishing structure. The support that the trellis or the wire that you'll see in vineyards as you drive by some of the vineyards around here, the the support system lifts the vines up so that the leaves and the foliage can get lots of sunshine, so that the grapes hang down under the, the canopy of the leaves and are protected. And so that as the branches grow out, they don't fall down onto the ground and bugs and bacteria begin to eat the fruit. And so that air can flow freely through there, which helps the plants to stay cooler and to not wilt. Structure creates an environment for the vine to grow well. And so that's what the Father does. He comes into our lives and he produces structure in our lives. He trains us how to walk after Jesus, how to maintain connection with Jesus. And we do that in day-to-day life. The Spirit constantly calling us, come away with me. The Spirit constantly drawing us. And, and every time we get into the Word, the Spirit's saying, okay, now bring your heart to me as a result of that. And every time we hear a teaching like you guys are hearing right now, right now, in this very moment, the Holy Spirit is speaking to hearts. And the Holy Spirit is telling you, Oh, that's for you. Hey, bring that forward. Now submit your heart to me in this. Dialogue with me about this. Let me search you in this. It's the day-to-day meeting with Jesus in the scriptures. It's the moments of worship in the car. It's the praises that we lift up in a moment when we just find an empty parking spot at Costco. It's the times where we get on our faces and plead before God for our kids and our loved ones. It's the little moments of praise when you, you get a really good hug from someone that you love and you just go, God, thank you. Thank you for this gift. A bazillion different ways that we find ourselves connected and the Spirit drawing us to Him. God provides structure for us in order that we might bear more fruit. So fruitfulness is increased by structure and by pruning. Third thing. Abiding is continual and fruitfulness is seasonal. Does the vine always bear fruit? Question. Nope. Not always. But in order to live, must the branch stay connected to the vine? Yep. No matter the season. When all the foliage is gone and all the fruit is stripped away. The only way the branch has life is by staying connected to the vine. You know, seasons accomplish different things in the life cycle of a vine. Fruitfulness is not year-round. Some seasons are dry and cold. And during that time, the roots of the vine grow deeper in order that they might bear more fruit. Other seasons bring on new growth. And along with that comes pruning. And other seasons come with the blessed joy of fruitfulness. But each season has its joys and its hardships. Continual fruitfulness does not happen all of the time. And guys, in the life of a saint, in the life of a believer, there will be times where you feel emotionally, relationally, very, very close to Jesus. And there will be other times where you will feel distant where maybe nothing has changed. All, all the same flaws that were present are, are there and all the same disciplines that were there that helped create an environment of health are, are, are also being done. But, but inside, the pleasure sensation, the joy of feeling close to God wanes. And then seasons come again and it returns. That is a normal process in the life of a saint. You see, fruitfulness comes in seasons, but abiding is continual. Our relational closeness and connection is sometimes an experience of relational joy. Where we go, oh God, I'm so thankful to be in your presence. God, I just feel you in worship. Lord, I just, I feel so close to you when I'm in your word. And other times you're going to read and you will feel nothing. And that's okay. It's all right because in those moments, your roots of faith are growing deeper. And your connection with Jesus is growing stronger because we walk by faith and not by sight. Listen, in those seasons, here's what you're learning. This is so important. I can't can't even tell you how important this is. Here's what you're learning. You're learning to seek Jesus for Jesus and not for the joy He provides. Not for the feel-good. Not for the emotional high. You're learning to to place eternal and surpassing worth and value on Jesus himself and not on the feelings that are produced in you. It's so key for us maturing. It's so key in creating stability. You see, much of the church has given to pursuing feelings. But seasons come. Come. And seasons go. Fruitfulness is not always there, but abiding always is. Connection is not emotional. It is spiritual. Our connection to Jesus is not emotional. It's not what we feel. It's spiritual. It's when we, by faith, make Him our treasure. When we, by faith, come before Him with our hearts. When we by faith surrender ourselves to Him and to His Word and we come again and again and again and again we say, only in you I have life. Only in you I have connection. Only in you can I accomplish anything. It's only in you. We remain connected to the vine even when our feelings don't match. The feelings feel good, but they are superficial. We're learning to love Jesus for Jesus, not just for what he provides. Listen, it is not the goal of teaching and worship to merely stir up your emotional state. Oh, church, please hear this. It is not the goal of church to merely stir up your emotional state that's not the goal. When we gauge the success of a time of gathering as the body of Christ based upon how we feel we we are seeking God for the treasure that he provides rather than for who he is. It is not the goal of worship to whip you up into a frenzy rather worship is the faith position it's the faith stance that looks at the glory of who God is and ascribes to him worth and value and gives to him the worth reflects back to him the worth that we see in him. That's where worship comes from. worth When we come and we gather, guys, what, this is what we're doing. When we lift our hands, we say, God, you are worthy of my surrender. My hands are up right now because, God, I am surrendered to you. Not because I'm whipping myself up into a frenzy. Not because I'm seeking to have some big emotional response, but because, God, you are the most worthy thing You are the name above all names, the king above all kings, more glorious than heaven and earth can contain. And teaching reminds us of that reality. Teaching draws our attention to eternity and to the reality of who God is and brings us to the crisis once again of saying, isn't God glorious? Isn't he amazing? And whether you feel it or not, whether you respond emotionally or not, God is glorious. Treat him as such. (laughs) Surrender to him as such. Submit your life to him as such. Listen, abiding is continual. Fruitfulness is seasonal. Our connection is not emotional, it's spiritual. And, and I want you to see this too. Faithfulness is more important than fruit, fruitfulness. When tending grapevines, you'll see how the, uh, the vine dresser prunes them back each year. Usually they prune them back to only two branches that kind of come off the wires if you've seen them at different seasons, just these two branches. And that's because vines only produce fruit off of one-year-old branches. So every year they trim off the old branches that bore fruit and, put, and allow buds to grow on new branches so that more fruit will come from these new branches. The old branches must be trimmed away. This means that the fruitfulness of a branch is dependent upon the pruning of the vine dresser. A good vine dresser will prune back a branch each year to the freshest buds on it and will trim away the old branches that no longer bear fruit for the good of the vine and for the abundance of the fruit. The main branch just has to stay attached to the vine stock or root. And each year there will be new growth and pruning that takes place. But the branches goal, listen, the branch's goal to stay stuck to the vine no matter the season. In season and out of season. And that's, what, that's what Paul told Timothy in Second Tim, Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. He said, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. It's a, it's a farming analogy, right? He's like, look, still keep doing what you're doing whether you see the fruit or not. Keep your connection to Jesus continual whether you see big fruit coming or not. Your life is found in your connection to Jesus in season and out of season. The only way you will ever bear fruit is if you stay connected to Jesus. And so this is what that means. How do we do this? How do we do this? First of all, embrace the season that you're in. Embrace the season you're in. If God is pruning away things, The goal is not to fight him in that don't resist him yield say okay god you you want me to spend less time on netflix okay awesome god you want me to get up a little bit earlier and discipline myself to go to bed earlier so that i can rise and meet you in the morning okay i'm gonna do that god you're calling me to prayer right now i in this moment I, i i'll do that okay yes I won't waste another minute on Facebook avoiding the conviction from the Holy Spirit. I'm going to yield to you right now embrace the season you're in your end. if god is pruning away things yield to him in the process if you're in a season where god is consoling and encouraging you soak up the joy of that if there's fruit that's coming in your life just oh man treasure it treasure those moments where where the the affections are stirred and fruit is flowing in your life because i promise you this they won't last forever If you're in a season of weariness and dryness, offer to him what he's worthy of. I I want to tell you the secret of worship in a dry season. Dry seasons afford you an opportunity that you will never ever have in any other part of life. They afford you the opportunity to express to God his worth and value without anything in return. Not a gift that he gives, not some feeling, not some stimulation that happens. When we worship in a dry season, when we turn to God in a dry season, when we give our hearts and surrender in a dry season, when we stay connected to the vine in a dry season, here's what's happening. We are giving to God a true sacrifice because we get nothing in return. These are powerful moments to truly give to God. Don't waste them. Don't fight God and the work that he's doing presently in you, even if it's painful. Receive it as a gift from the one who carries the shears. If he's pruning you, if he's refining you, if it's a dry season, let your roots go down deep and stay connected to Jesus. Stay connected regardless of how you feel. Listen, church hopping is often due to the reality that we care more about the feelings we get from the sermon or worship. When our sense of God's presence is rooted in feelings, we chase the feeling rather than God himself. Stay in the crucible. Receive his refining work. Offer your heart in the many moments that you have with God. When I say many, I don't mean M-A-N-Y. I mean M-I-N-I many moments with god but for those of you who are tracking with us in this study go online download the pdf or of our resource guide for this week because there's an opportunity for you to see practically how we absorb and grab a hold of make use of the many moments of our life in god I encourage you to take part in that but all throughout the day we just maintain our connection with him we tend our connection We we turn to him for life we turn to him for wisdom we turn to him in praise we turn to him in worship we turn to him in intercession and we do it all day long throughout our day we live before his face and in his presence so stay connected regardless of how you feel thirdly simplify your mission. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? How Mary is at the feet of Jesus and Martha's in the kitchen working and she gets irritated with Mary because Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus like what are you you know what are you doing? Jesus says, "Hey Martha, you're concerned about all kinds of things, but Mary has chosen the better portion, and I won't take it away from her." Week after week you will hear the scriptures being spoken here in the sanctuary in the gathering of the saints hopefully week after week and day after day you will be in the scriptures yourself reading and studying instead of walking away with the to do list make it your aim then to bring your heart before the Lord and to just simply ask ask this question how is your word leading me closer to you today how is your word drawing me to you? Yes, God, I see that. I surrender that. That's what I want. Thank you, Lord, for the comfort that I now receive. Or show me how this this portion of Scripture, how this moment of prayer, is drawing me closer to you. God, thank you. You just embrace that moment. Simplify your mission. It, it's not a to-do list of a hundred different things. It's a one thing list abide abide in the vine you know what we're currently living through Mitch you can come on up what we're currently living through in the gospel is something that Jesus said was better than the days that he physically walked the earth would you you turn back to the scriptures here in verse 12, he says this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Here's what he's saying. Listen, I have loved you and I've loved you to the very end and and I've shown you everything that I want you to know. I'm I'm not calling you servants. You're not my slaves any longer. This is not a yoke of slavery. Slavery. You're my friend, and I'm inviting you into this. When you take my yoke upon you, it is not the yoke of slavery. It is the yoke of friendship. It's what I'm giving to you as a gift. It is my love poured forth, and my commands are not a burden. They're an invitation to experience life in me. I came that you might have joy, and that your joy might be full through your connection to me. That's what I wanted to give you. I just, stay close to me. Get life from me. Enjoy this friendship as we labor together, as you step into and take my yoke upon you. Let's walk this out together. This is the walk of relationship. It is the walk of friendship. It is the walk of abiding. Listen, Jesus said this at a moment before he is going to the cross. He's saying, this is, this is what I'm purchasing with my life. This is what I intended by, by offering. No, by, no greater love has any man in this than a man lay down his life for, my, for his friends. And he says, and I am your friend. You are my friend. I'm doing this for you. Folks, abide in the vine. It is what Jesus purchased for us. At great cost to himself. And it's the reason for which he came. Abide. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder. God, oh Lord, we need it. God, we need you to draw us close and to teach us. father have your way have your way in us god draw us close even now as we fellowship with you in communion meet us our hearts are open before you we're here to abide in the name and for the glory of jesus amen